All across America and around the world, this is Veterans Radio. This is Veterans Radio. And now, your host for today's program, Dale Throneberry. And welcome to Veterans Radio. My name is Dale Throneberry, CW2 type helicopter pilot in Vietnam in 1969. So we want to welcome you to our program. I'm really excited to have you here today. We're going to talk a little music and we're going to talk a little adventure, uh, during the program. The first part of the program, we're going to be talking with a, the, uh, some guys from Operation Song. All of you who listen to Veterans Radio are familiar with Operation Song. And we've got a great story to tell today. And we've got the, the person who, uh, has the story and then the guy who helped him record the story. And then we're going to play the song that they were able to put together. So I'm excited for that. The second part of the program is going to be about a Coast Guard rescue of the, uh, the Coast Guard cutter, uh, Jarvis. And this was a, uh, Coast Guard ship that got stuck up in Alaska in the Aleutians, uh, during a, in a storm where the, 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 the boat went over almost 60 degrees. It's just a, it's, it's a great story. And, uh, the book is titled All Present and Accounted For. It's by, uh, Captain Stephen Craig. And so Captain Craig is going to be all along with two crewmen from the Jarvis, uh, who's going to, going to be kind of filling us into what really happened. But before we get into that, I have to really say, you know, thank you to all of our sponsors and all of you supporters out there that help us keep on the air every single week here on Veterans Radio on our stations, WAAM in Ann Arbor, Michigan, uh, WDDK in Detroit, Michigan, KMET out in California, and KFOW in uh, Minnesota. So we want to thank everybody that does help us do that. And starting at the top of the list, I guess you could say our corporate sponsors, our legal help for veterans. And uh, Legal Help for Veterans, they specialize in veteran disability claims. So give them a call at 800-693-4800. You know, with this new PACT Act, there's all kinds of uh, new benefits that are available and lots of questions that need to be answered. So you could give uh, Legal Help a call. That number, again, is 800-693-4800. The National Veterans Business Development Council, better known as NVBDC, is the nation's leading third-party authority for certification of a veteran-owned business. For more information, you can go to their website, that's nvbdc.org, or give them a call at 888-237-8433. A quick reminder here is if you want to do business with the federal government and you are a veteran-owned business, you need to be certified that you were really a veteran-owned business. And so these are the guys that can help you do that. That's nvbdc.org. The Charles S. Kettles VA Medical Center here in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Uh, for more information about the uh, VA Center here, you can go to va.gov slash Ann Arbor Healthcare. We also want to thank our local veterans organizations for their longtime support. We've been doing this for almost 20 years, and we could never do it without the help of the uh, Irwin Prescott and American Legion Post Number 46 and the Charles S. Kettles Vietnam Veterans of America Chapter 310, both of Ann Arbor, Michigan. So, all right, here we go. So we're going to go right into our story. And joining me right now here on Veterans Radio, we've got two gentlemen who are really talented gentlemen. Um, number one is George Meldrum, and George is a uh, uh Vietnam veteran, and it's his story that we're going to be talking about. So, George, welcome to Veterans Radio. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. And uh, Chuck Jones, not the Chuck Jones of Looney Tunes, the Chuck Jones, <laughs> a musician who was, uh, lives in Nashville and helped 
um, help George put his story together. So, Chuck, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me, Dale. Pleasure to be here, man. Can you tell us a little bit about what Operation Song does and how it operates? Absolutely. Um, it all started about 10 years ago. A buddy of mine uh, who's a, another professional songwriter here in Nashville, uh, Bob Regan, uh, he started it and uh, basically as a, you know, just a labor of love. He was retiring from songwriting professionally at that point in time and just put a, his heart and soul into helping veterans um as they say, as uh, one song at a time, as their motto is. And uh, Bob uh, started the company, and he would just call his buddies who were professional songwriters here in town that he'd known through the years. And uh, he also got a hold of the Veterans Hospital here in town and one down in Chattanooga. I think he started out kind of small. Um, and he would send writers out to write with veterans on a regular basis, like once once a week or something like that. And then at some point he started doing a um, retreats, these in-person retreats where, uh, you know, uh, well, he's done them all over the country now, but uh, uh, they would hold them I'm here in Nashville, you know, down in Georgia, Fort Benning, places like that. But I've done several of these live retreats, and that's where they just basically um, would have like maybe 10 to 15 veterans and about the same amount of songwriters. And what it is, it's a lot of these veterans come back and say that, that this experience for them helped them as much as any therapy they ever had, if not more, you know. And uh, it's it's just very healing for a lot of them, you know, to sit and be able to tell their story to somebody and uh, someone who can, you know, basically take those um, their words and kind of meld, meld them into a song, you know. And uh, a lot of times there might be two songwriters with a veteran or maybe it's just one on one. Um, but anyway, the, the whole point of the deal is is to take the, the veteran story and put it to song and then record it for them. And so they'll have it, you know, and very few of them are musically inclined, you know, every uh, musically inclined. Every now and then someone like George will come along who can actually sing. And, and I think you're a drummer, too. Right, George, you were, you were a musician when you went over to Vietnam. Is that right? That's correct. I, I was yeah. I was a drummer. That's what I thought. And so, uh, but you know, everything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, but so that's the that's the the point is just to uh, dive in and uh, basically I'll sit there with a um, you know with a pencil and pad and or these days an iPad whatever and uh, just listen to them talk and ask some questions and. You know, sometimes they don't even want to write about their experience in the service. They want to write about something entirely different. <laughs> Some of them are pissed off at the service. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I probably shouldn't use certain language. <laughs> so, uh, all right. Yes. You can get away with that. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, at any rate, you know, I'll, I'll take, um, and most of the time, and this, this, that's the case with this song that me and George wrote, Whiskey on Your Stone. Uh, the words that they say, they tell me in their story, I'll put those into the song. And, you know, so they feel a part of, you know, they feel vested in it. It's their lyrics as much as mine. And, uh, generally I'll come up with a melody and some, and some chords on guitar. And, you know, at the end of, I think me and George wrote this one. I mean, I don't, I'm not sure if we had a whole day to do it. These days, most of the time I'm writing in two hours, wow. uh, with the guys, you know, but, uh, Operation Song does a, uh, a kind of a co-venture with Shepherd Center down in Atlanta that has a, the share organization and they, they work entirely with, I think they, they can get 20 veterans or active duty military in there at the same time. They give them apartments and it's all, all of them have TBIs of some sort, you know, 
And so I work with them quite a bit now. But uh, but it's a thing through Operation Song. But that's basically, I think this story, like I said, they just had a uh, 10-year anniversary for Bob and the organization. And he no longer runs it. He is still involved. Uh, another A veteran named Mike Byers Byer actually uh, runs it these days. And uh, But I think they've written that this, to date, over... I know it's over a thousand, maybe as many. I think it might be up to fifteen hundred or so songs now that they've written with veterans. Yeah, we have we have had Operation Song on uh, Veterans Radio before because of the great work that they're doing. Yeah, and there's another group out in uh, Wisconsin. I think that does something similar. I think it's called Warrior Songs. And um, yeah, but I wanted to get to George because I want to hear his story, and then you know. Yeah. We're going to hear George's story, and then we're going to play the song that George and uh, Chuck put together. So, George, tell me, um, we talked just briefly before we went on the air. So you were in Vietnam at the end of 1968 into 69, and you were with, with what outfit? First Infantry Division. Big Red One, right? Yeah, if you're going to be one, be a Big Red One. <laughs> I was with the 2nd of the 28th Infantry. Uh, we were Black Lions, uh, and... Uh, we worked uh, out of Lyke, uh on Highway 13, as, as you're familiar with. Uh, and uh, we did uh, uh, just a lot of uh, uh, S&D, uh, a, lot of, uh, a lot of walking, a lot of hopping, day, uh, you know, all day long. Uh, and uh, uh, that was pretty much what we, uh, what we did. You, you mentioned earlier that the, 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 the first day that you got there, they were smart enough to put you out near the point. Yeah, they they let me they let me uh, experience the jungle, the full force of the jungle, if you will. They gave me that uh, machete and said, "Go for it." And at the time, what we would do, we would walk in three files, and you never walk on a you never walk on a trail, you know, <laughs> because that that's suicide to walk on a trail. They just ambush you that way. So you walk you walk through the jungle. <laughs> and you just make your own way, and uh, it's quite an experience for for those that uh, have been in a a forest. It's not really the same thing. <laughs> the jungle is like uh, just a a, a mesh uh, uh, before you, and you have to 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 push and cut your way through. It's a it's a it's a, a different experience. <laughs> to put how old way. How old were you when you when you went to Vietnam? I was nineteen years old. Okay. When I went to Vietnam, I, I was, uh, 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 or I, I could, uh, I was, I was just turned 19 or just turned 20. Uh, I know because, uh, um, because let's see, 68 and, uh, September. So that would have been an even, yeah, I was 20. Uh, I was 20, just turned 20. So tell me about the, 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 the story of, of your song, this, this whiskey on your stone. Can, um, it, this, this song deals with, uh, uh, to, to me, uh, and a lot of guys, uh, uh, struggle with, uh, uh, survivor's remorse. And, and, and you, 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 you're the guy that, that made it. And, and maybe the next guy next to you or the, or the person just up the uh, file from you, uh, just happens to be in the, in the spot where, 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 where he, he gets, he gets killed and, and you don't and you, and you wonder, uh, you know, why, why wasn't it me? And, and, and you struggle with that. In this particular case, a, uh, 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 a guy named OB, everybody has their, their, their nicknames. In fact, most of the guys, I don't even know their names. I don't remember their names, 
But OB was a, a kid named James O'Banion. Uh, and uh, we had a, a guy named Caldwell, which was Will. I was Mel. And we had uh, uh, <laughs> Flash and and uh, Maddie and, and Guinea and Wop. And these two guys were very proud of being uh, Italian-Americans. And they picked their own names. They were their own nicknames. But everybody had a nickname. And uh, OB and I were uh, – we're on an operation together. I had just come back. I had just come back from uh, from uh, R and R, and I at the time was was carrying a, a sixty, and I had given my sixty to my ammo bear. And when I got back to the field, he asked me, "Did I want it back?" And I said, "No, you just hold on to it until we get done with this operation, and then I'll take it back." Uh, and he isn't. He's another guy that that was was killed that same day, uh, and and so. Uh, that fueled that helped to fuel the same, you know, um, survivor's remorse. So it talks about song talks about um, um, talks about a guy that uh, he 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 talks to his buddy, uh, and you're not sure how he he's talking to his buddy. But uh, during the the song, you 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 get the uh, uh, the idea that he uh, he talks to him when he visits his grave. Um, so that's basically, basically what the song's that, about. I mean, obviously, it's a, it's a very uh, personal song for you and and the story. And, uh, you know, as you mentioned before, there are so many veterans from all kinds of generations and conflicts and so forth that, that have that survivor's remorse because they turned left instead of turning right. And, you know, their buddy, you know, got it. And, yeah, and he, and he did guilty, you know, like like it should have been should have been me. Well, of course, it should never have been anyone. <laughs> oh, right, but. right. Well, I, I I think this is a great thing that that Operation Song is doing, and I want our audience to hear this song. And- well, I I must say I, I I feel really blessed, very lucky that I got that I got Chuck was the one that that was was that I got to to write this with because what what a, what a talented. A musician uh, and songwriter he is, and 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 it really really made the made the song. Well, thank you, George. I appreciate that, buddy. I think I think our audience is going to really um, enjoy the song, and also you you cannot miss the message. And it, it sounds like it's professional. This is this is actually George Meldrum is the, doing the vocal on this version. So as soon as I can get uh, and Chuck doing the harmony, and it's that's right. harmony. He's in the background. I hear him there. Okay. So we're going to uh, go to the song. The song is entitled Whiskey on Your Stone. And um, so, Derek, whenever you're ready, we're going to be playing uh, the number four version of it. humid, it was hot. Four-day operation, we were walking point line. Humping through that jungle, how thirsty it got. Man, do you remember? Remember when we'd stop, set up for the night? Spread out in a circle, don't get too bright Praying 
it don't rain Just waiting for the light Man, do you remember Been a while now since I talked to you About all the crazy times we had All the hell that we walked through The good, the ugly, and the bad Can't share this stuff with no one else I don't like talking to myself You know I don't like to drink alone So here I am on your stone Remember all the dreams we shared over coffee and some spam You were gonna drive for NASCAR I'd be a music man When we got back to the world Yeah, we sure had big plans Man, do you remember Oftentimes I think about the way that day went down If I'd been standing where you were, I'd be laying in that ground Oh, but that ain't how it happened And there ain't no peace I found And it hurts me to remember Been a while now since I talked to you about on your stone Whiskey on your stone Oh wow <laughs> that's all i can say that that's just a great song that's 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 great george um you and chuck certainly did put it together i just I mean, I've listened to this song now probably 20 times over the last week. Oh, wow. Each <laughs> time, it just, it just strikes nerve. You know, it's not that I didn't, you know, like I said, everybody that was over there or in any conflict probably has had the, you know, the example of being near somebody that got killed. And, uh, you know, it could have been you just as easily. And so I, I, I want to thank both of you for the, the, the story. For the song, and I really want to thank Operation Song for what they're doing for veterans. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, and, and um, yeah. let them get their stories out because, as as you know, as George mentioned earlier on, you know, sometimes we can talk about these things, but then sometimes we just shut down. And Chuck uh, obviously did a good job of pulling this out of George, and then putting it to a, just a beautiful melody. I thought. Well, thank you, guys, man. Uh, it's always an honor. An honor to do it. Well, I want thank to you, Chuck. You bet, buddy. <laughs> well, yeah, thank you enough. Thanks both of you guys for being on Veterans Radio today. And I encourage our audience to go to operationsong.org. And there are many songs that are listed there. And you can purchase albums and 
you can see how the process works and uh, you know, maybe you can bring it into your own hometown wherever you happen to be there, you know, where they could do, do something like this. It just seems, it's just a, such a great program that, yeah, really. you know, we're anxious to have um, Operation Song back on again, uh, you know, next month or a couple of months out down the road. And uh, again, for our listeners, you can go to veteransradio.net, type in Operation Song, and you'll see that we've had them on a couple of times before. There's a lot of their songs are on YouTube, too. They have their own channel. And Bandcamp, they have it on, on Bandcamp. I, I didn't know they had a YouTube channel, but I'll have to check that out. You know, don't doubt it, you know. On their website. <laughs> on the website. I got you. Yeah. All right. So thank you both very much for being on the program, and we hope to have you back again. If you come up with another story, George, let us know. I'd be happy to talk about it. Thank you very much. Good Thanks. to see you, George. Thanks, Thanks for so having much. us. Hey, yeah, good to see you too, Chuck. Always a pleasure. You're, you're, you you're great. We are going to take a real quick break. And when we come back, we're going to be talking to the Coast Guard. So you're listening to Veterans Radio. The Medal of Honor is the highest award for valor in combat given a member of the Armed Forces of the United States. There have been over 3,400 recipients of the nation's highest award. This is one of them. Army Captain Ed Freeman flew 14 rescue missions under intense enemy fire, saving 30 seriously wounded soldiers. Details after this. If you have a VA claim denied by the Board of Veterans' Appeals, contact Legal Help for Veterans at 1-800-693-4800. They're experts in handling cases before the U.S. Court of Appeals for Veterans' Claims. Their number again, 1-800-693-4800. As a flight leader, Freeman supported a heavily engaged American infantry battalion in the I Trang Valley in the Republic of Vietnam. The unit was almost out of ammunition after taking some of the heaviest casualties of the war, fighting off a relentless attack from a highly motivated, heavily armed enemy force. When the infantry commander closed the helicopter landing zone due to intense direct enemy fire, Freeman risked his own life by flying his unarmed helicopter through a gauntlet of enemy fire time after time, delivering critically needed ammunition, water, and medical supplies to the besieged battalion. His flights had a direct impact on the battle's outcome by providing the engaged units with timely supplies of ammunition critical to their survival. After medical evacuation helicopters refused to fly into the area due to intense enemy fire, Captain Freeman flew 14 separate rescue missions, providing life-saving evacuation of an estimated 30 seriously wounded soldiers some of whom would not have survived had he not acted. All flights were made into a small emergency landing zone within 100 to 200 yards of the defensive perimeter, where heavily committed units were perilously holding off the attacking elements. The Medal of Honor series is a production of Veterans Radio. Military veterans touch everyone's life. I'm guessing right now you're thinking of a veteran, a close friend, relative, maybe it's you. Even the toughest of us sometimes need help, but don't know where to turn for support. You don't need special training to help a veteran in your life. We can all help someone going through a difficult time. Learn how you can be there for veterans. Visit VeteransCrisisLine.net. VeteransCrisisLine.net. A message from the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. We're back here on Veterans Radio, and just a quick reminder that the gentlemen that were on in the first portion of the program were from Operation Song, and uh, I just love that group because what they do is they take veteran stories and turn them into professionally recorded uh, music, 
And so I encourage you to go to their website. That's operationsong.org and uh, see what they can do. Maybe you've got a good story that you might be interested in. So we're going to kind of do a little quick transition here from songwriting to the Coast Guard. And uh, I, I want to introduce the Coast Guard first. So we're going to just play a brief little uh, uh, segment of their theme. So Derek, hit it. Semper Paratus. Here we go. All right. Welcome back to Veterans Radio. Joining me on the line right now, actually, are going to be three people. We're going to start off with the author of the book first. Uh, the, the author of the story is All Present and Accounted For. That's the title of the book. And the first guest is Captain Steve uh, Stephen Craig. He's the United States Coast Guard Reserve, re- retired. And he wrote the story of the grounding of the Coast Guard Cutter Jarvis. So, Steve... Welcome to Veterans Radio. Oh, I'm glad you could have me on. Thanks. It's a pleasure to have you on. This story I found amazing and scary and redeeming and all the other good positive words I can think of as as we go along. Um, what made you decide to write this story? Well, back in 1973, I was stationed over base Honolulu, and I ran across one of the crew members from the Coast Guard Carrier Jarvis, uh, they had had that incident in uh, November of uh, 1972, and this was about six months later, and I ran across this guy. He's telling me a story about uh, the ship uh, uh, almost sinking and, and uh, talking talk about having they were had prayer circles because they thought they were going to die, and they were praying for their safe rescue. And, and, uh, and anyway, the story stuck with me because... First, I was sort of dumbfounded because I'd never heard of this story, and you know, I'd been around the base there. Uh, Jarvis was home base out of Honolulu, and I hadn't heard the story. So the story stuck with me. And then, uh, uh, 2018, I was working as a contractor for FEMA, uh, doing emergency management type of work, uh, planning, and I retired from all that. And I thought, well, you know, I think I'll write a magazine article about this story. And the more I researched, uh, it just sort of exploded. I interviewed. Uh, over 35 former crew members. I've uh, interviewed people that are associated with the, the air uh, assets as far as dropping supplies, uh, people at various stations throughout the Coast Guard. And uh, I also got the records from uh, San Bruno, the, the official ship uh, logs. And so I took the stories, and then I, got, I basically outlined the dates and times that were in the ship logs and then matched the stories up to the timelines. And that's how I came out with the the, the book. First part of the book, is, I think you know, is in regard to David Jarvis, who the ship was named after. He was quite infamous uh, in the Coast Guard, first the Reagan Cutter Service, and most notably the rescue in 1897 of some eight trapped um, ships up in uh, northern Alaska trapped in the ice, and uh, there was expedition to rescue. There was 265 uh, men up there, and David Jarvis led the the effort to go up and rescue. And just that part of it was just amazing that uh, they had to trek like 1,600 miles to get to the trapped 
whalers had to go overland. They sailed as far north as they could, and then they were dropped off and then uh, go overland to rescue the the uh, trapped whalers. And this, these are conditions where uh, it's about 100% dark the whole time. Uh, temperatures drop down to minus 50 degrees. And you know, I reread my section uh, yesterday, and I, I, the, the environmental conditions just extremely horrible. And it's just amazing they made it. And, and then when you read the story about the Coast Guard Carter Jarvis, uh, the, the environmental conditions they had to uh, deal with, because it was in November of uh, 1972, and that's not the best time to be up in Alaska. And uh, the, the conditions were just horrendous for them. I can I can tell you, just reading the book, I was cold. Um, <laughs> didn't make any difference. Yeah. Kept jacking the heat up because it was cold. So the, the 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 history of the Coast Guard is kind of interesting in itself. And you and you do a a really thorough job of giving us a background on the Coast Guard. And I have a, a you know personal interest in this because my dad was in the Coast Guard during World War II, and uh, he ended up in the Pacific and kamikazes and the whole bit. And, uh, so I, I, I can really emphasize the Coast Guard actually started out doing what? What was their main function when they were first founded? Um, Jack Hunter's on the phone, probably better, uh, answer than I do. Uh, I believe that one of the main purposes at first was like preventing pirates from, uh, uh, taking over ships. We had different names over the years. Uh, when 1915, uh, it, it, the U.S. Revenue Cutter Service, which is what it was when David Jarvis was in, was then merged with another uh, life-saving service, and, and that formed the U.S. Coast Guard in 1915. Okay. David Jarvis is quite, uh, even today, they, they have a, a leadership inspirational award that's called the David Jarvis Award that's awarded annually for leadership. Well, that certainly is understandable. You know, the audience, and we're, we're talking right now with, uh, uh, Steve Craig, and he, he wrote a book in t- that is, t- that is titled All Present and Accounted For, which is the story of the Coast Guard Cutter Jarvis, uh, in November of 72. And it's, this he's included in the book the story of, of, of Jarvis going overland to rescue these people in, in, in Alaska. And it's, it's just a harrowing story. I mean, it's, 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 it's almost as harrowing as the story about the, about the, the ship itself. Um, so the, the Jarvis was, when was the Jarvis commissioned? It was, uh, the kid was late 1971 and then it was home ported in 1972 out of Honolulu. And, uh, it was one of their first missions later in the year in November or October was to go up to Alaska and, and help enforce the fisheries uh, trees and, and make sure those uh, fishing vessels were in compliance. And they did some other uh, maritime activities up there as well, as far as research. So that was uh, uh, that was in uh, November 1972 when they they had that incident. But yeah, they they just been they were the Coast Guard's newest ship, uh, the Pride of Sleep, uh, as you could say. How how big is a Coast Guard cutter? I I I never, you know, the only Coast Guard ships I've seen have been on the Great Lakes. Yeah, the the, the high dirt cutter is what the Jarvis was, and they're three hundred seventy eight feet long. Uh, there's uh, there, none, there's, I think there was eleven of them that were commissioned, but none are in existence today or 
or in the U.S. Uh, forces. A lot of them were sold to foreign countries. Uh, the Cutter Jarvis was 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 given to the country of Bangladesh. Other countries, uh, the Philippines got got a few of our vessels as well. The same thing with some of the buoy tenders. A lot of them were either uh, mothballed or, or sold for scrap. Uh, so a lot of the ships that we had in the 70s are no longer around. They modernized. Or at least, the or at least they're employed with other countries. All right. We've got two other people on the line that actually were on the ship uh, during this adventure, put it that way. Uh, Jack Hunter, uh, Jack, welcome to Veterans Radio. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. And, and, uh, Thank you. So where were you on the ship, and are, were you with the ship right after it, it was commissioned? Yes, yeah, so we were part of the pre-commissioning crew uh, in 1971, and, and the ship, we went aboard uh, the end of December of 1971, uh, and we in New Orleans, and we ended up, we commissioned it in full operation in August the 4th of 1972. So this Alaska patrol was actually our second patrol uh, in 1972. We did a, we did a weather station back before we had all the satellites. Uh, we had weather, we had ships stationed around the world at different uh, locations in the open ocean. It was halfway between Hawaii and San Francisco, that's where the ocean station was, but this particular one was in. We left in October, and and uh, we went to Alaska for, as Stephen said, for our fish patrol. Which uh, I went to many more after that date, but uh, I was the uh, chief gunner's mate at the time uh, on the Jarvis, and and I did it. Ended up spending four years uh, as part of that crew. I was the last one of the original crew to depart. Uh, I departed in 1975, so I was there about four years. Okay, and uh, we got Richard uh, Brunk, is it? Richard, welcome to the program. Thank you, Dale, and good to hear from you again, Steve. Yeah, it's our uh, <laughs> it's old home week for you folks, um, which is good, which is good. So tell me what your relationship was uh, to the Jarvis. Well, I, re- I boarded the Jarvis when it came to Honolulu. Uh, the day the day it came in, I had was on previously the Coast Guard cutter Chautauqua, which was home based in Honolulu. We decommissioned that and took it to Portsmouth, Virginia, which was given to the Vietnamese. And then I was flown back. I was eighteen at the time. I just graduated high school, and uh, at that, as many people during that time, it was either college or the or the military, and I chose the military, and the Coast Guard was it. So when the Jarvis came to Honolulu, I came on the day she pulled in and uh, was on there for all the workups to go through our patrols and, and on there when it uh, it's patrol up in Alaska. So what was your specialty? Oh. I, was, uh, I came on as a seaman, and I uh, made BM3, both of me third class, which is an E4, on the, on the Jarvis. And pretty much that's the jack of all trades, master of none. We pretty much did everything topside, gunnery, defense, weapons, painting, maintenance, uh, you know, drove the ship. You name it, we did it. We just didn't work on the engines, ran the small boat. So we were involved in pretty much everything topside. Okay. All right. So you guys were all over the place. I, I, 
I'm just sitting here thinking, you know, I'm wondering what, the, you know, how, where this story is going to go because I know what's going to happen next. And I'm anxious to hear uh, both your and, and Jack's reactions to when Steve tells us what happened to the Jarvis. So I'm going to go back to you, Steve. We're talking, as I mentioned before, here on Veterans Radio with uh, uh, Captain Steve Craig. He's a United States Coast Guard Reserve, retired. His book is titled all President Accounted for, the 1972 Alaska Grounding of the U.S. Coast Guard Cutter Jarvis and the efforts that were made to save the ship. So, Stephen, take us to November 1972, and what in the heck happened? Well, they had uh, encountered, uh, as the day went on, uh, they had a, a crew member had to get some, I believe, some dental work done up there uh, near Dutch Harbor, and... They had uh, gone short, and they, when they came back, the wind started picking up. Uh, they had anchored, and and the captain had been, like, awake for 30 hours because of the weather getting worse. And he had gone to sleep. They had anchored. Uh, there was a, a new ensign that was on the ship. Uh, they had given some of the other officers time off because they wanted them available the next day when they would be underway. And he told the ensign that, look, if something happens, you know, you wake me up right away. And, uh, lo and behold, uh, the winds picked up, uh, a new term I learned interviewing people was a willow wall that is like a, a, a severe wind that comes down through the mountain pass can actually, you know, create a lot of havoc. Go on, uh, YouTube and Google willow wall. You, there's some videos out there that can give you an idea of what it was. And a couple of people felt like it was a will while it definitely had, had hit the ship. Anyway, the ship dragged, uh, dragged anchor and it went aground. And, uh, right before it went aground, the captain, uh, came up and, and, uh, it was unfortunately too late to do much about it at that time. Uh, but it went aground. It tore a, not a real big hole, uh, but it tore a hole and they were, they were filling up with, uh, hundreds of gallons of uh, water in the engine room. They got it patched, and they proceeded. Uh, there was discussion with some of the people, officers and warrant officers, on whether they should go out or not the next day. And this was the day before satellites. There was, there was um, no way you could figure out what the weather was going to be like. So the, uh, uh, they, they headed out to sea the next day. It was a decision made they could make it. Captain assured a district that uh, they, they were fine to sail out. And as they were sailing out, uh, the EXO had mentioned he had written a long story about it. And the most monstrous seas that he had ever seen uh, hit the ship. They went out in just extremely bad weather. And, of course, uh, the engine room, it tore the shoring off. Uh, the, it filled up uh, the engine room with, I believe, about 11, 12 feet of water, disabled the engines. And they, they were thus, you know, adrift uh, and, uh, in the water. And one of the harrowing stories was that uh, it was blinding out. You know, you had snow and ice and rain and all that, and it was dark out. And the captain decided they were, maybe when they were going to go ahead and head back to where they had anchored to get out of the high seas. And as he turned, he couldn't see anything pitch black, and, the, and a wave hit him. And it actually put the ship at like a 60-degree angle. And uh, several crew members mentioned how they, you know, one time they're walking on the you know, the deck next thing you know, they're walking on the bulkhead, wondering what the heck was going on. And they had some other severe waves after that as well. Uh, I had one person tell me that was impossible for a ship to hit a 60-degree uh, 
angle like that, but uh, it's in the official records, I believe, back east. I, I believe uh, Runke had some information on that. Uh, but anyway, so they, they, they went adrift. They lost all power, and they were heading toward Akatan Island. And if they, if they hit the rocks, uh, they would definitely, uh, they would, they would sink, um, you know, tear the ship apart. There was some discussion about having the life, uh, boats, uh, lowered and guys would try to make it too short with that. And Runke had some interesting comments. He figured he'd rather go down with the ship than get in those life rafts, especially when you got waves that are 20, 30, you know, 40 feet high. There's no way a life craft could possibly even make it. You'd be thrown in water in November of water in Alaska. You'd, you know, get, uh, you'd be freezing up immediately and, and die in those waters. So they, uh, they sent out an SOS. Um, a friend of mine was on a Loran station up there in Alaska and he was coming on watch. And he said, what's going on? He said, well, the, uh, Jarvis sent out, uh, SOS. So we're dealing with that right now. And, he said, well, so what ship's in danger? And the guy said, you don't understand. He says, it's the Jarvis that's in danger. And, uh, so it's, it's a bad situation. Uh, newspapers, uh, all over the world, uh, re- reporting progress. There's four or five newspapers, including one television story that came out and said the ship had actually sunk. So, uh, the Coast Guard had to do a lot of damage control on that story. Say, no, the ship has not sunk. You know, they're, they're proceeding to, to, uh, for rescue, uh, a Japanese trawler did come up on the scene. Um, uh, meantime, the, the crew, they had tried different maneuvers to slow the ship down because uh, I believe the trawler said, well, yeah, we could be there in about an hour. And I think the ship officers figured, well, we're going to go ground in a half hour, so that's not, that's not good enough. So they did a bunch of maneuvers to try to slow the ship down. And, the, and you know, the rest is history. The, obviously, the... The uh, trawler got on scene, and and uh, Jack Hunter was instrumental in in firing the the tow gun over to the ship. Uh, and conditions that I can't imagine. He was you know on his uh, knees, and the ship's rocking back and forth, and and trying to fire that gun. Um, and he'll have more story on that. But the, yeah, like the rest of the history, uh, they were towed Dutch Harbor where they underwent some repairs. Uh, Navy divers came in, well, did some underground water welding, and, and put temporary patches on a ship for them to proceed. Well, I, I, I just, <laughs> I'm still thinking about the the idea of a, of a ship rolling sixty degrees or walking on the bulkheads. Um, Jack, what was what was it like for you? I mean, with forty and fifty foot waves, and of course the weather was, you know, what zero. Probably, I, I don't know the temperature, to be honest with you. I know it was cold. It was very, very cold, and, and I wasn't as prepared as, as Bronchi would be. He was on deck working, and, and uh, I had my own problems in, uh, in the projectile magazine, which also had a leak. Uh, we uh, punched a hole, not a hole, but we uh, experienced a leak in the projectile magazine, so we were flooding in that compartment also. And so being a gunner's mate, that was, that was my responsibility in that area. And, but when we, the Japanese trawler came, we had to pass a line from us to them, and they attempted to fire their line from them to us, and, and they used uh, rockets, uh, uh, like a fireworks-type rocket to fire okay. to us. Okay. And both of those uh, lines that they fired all 
flew high and they ended up in our radar antennas up above. And so I fired what we call a line throwing gun, which is a projectile that's attached to a line to allow you to pass line from ship to ship. And, of course, they had one language and we had another, and it was very difficult for them to understand what we wanted, so we had a tug of war at the time to reattach my line from the line torn gun to the messenger, which we were sending to them. The messenger is a line, that a smaller line, to allow you to pull bigger lines back and forth. And uh, so we, anyway, it was very cold. And, uh, we were on the forecastle, which is the bow of the ship. Uh, and uh, like uh, Stephen said, I was on my knees because the wind was blowing, the ship was rocking and rolling, and it was extremely cold. And, and I'd been out there for 30 or 40 minutes. And again, unprepared, uh, no real foul weather gear for me. And uh, but anyway, with, I got braced enough, beat on your knees, and fired a gun, and, and the line was passed, and we were able to connect our towing line to them so they could uh, proceed to tow us. So that was the that was my contribution to that part of it. But uh, the, the, sea, the deck force that, that uh, Rocky was on, they moved all the towing lines from the stern to the bow because we normally do the towing, not being towed. So our, our towing lines were stowed in the after part of the ship. And uh, so that was a big... Uh, undertaking in itself just to move that, that line from the aft to the stern. And, and uh, that was done uh, in preparation for this towing operation. Oh, okay. Richard, Richard, where were you at the time? Well, at, at the time of the initial grounding, I it was in the morning. I was in the rack, and uh, we heard the ship scrape bottom. And we didn't know what was going on, but we knew it wasn't good because the birthing area I was in, a 30-man birthing area, was below the water line. So we all jumped out of the rack and put our clothes on. We were running, running out of the birthing area, and then the, uh, the battle stations went off. And um, I was part of the gunnery crew. We had a 5-inch 38 mount, which Chief Hunter was in charge in. And once we all mustered, uh, and we were president accounted for, um, we all went to the mess deck, and they were using people to help the engineers. Uh, well, as the ship, as they stated, left earlier or left the next day, I mean, you could really see the mountainous seas. We were in the lee of the Aleutian chain, and you could see the really rough seas out there. And once we hit the rough seas, pretty much all hell broke loose. And, uh, you know, we were... We were responding from one emergency to the other. The uh, We started taking out water, and as Steve said, the Coast Guard sent out, or the Jarvis sent out an SOS, and the air station Kodiak started sending out uh, aircraft with pumps to drop to us, and this was in the middle of the night. We had no lights. We had no power, and they were flying so low, Dale, that I swear to God I thought they were going to hit the mast, the top of the mast. And they were dropping these pumps because they had hit the flight deck. Because right. if they hit the well, we, if they hit the water, we could we couldn't retrieve them. You had so, a helicopter on board your the ship, correct? Uh yes. I yeah, the the aircraft yes. came after the helicopter took off. That is correct. Okay. Right after the, after we launched after the helicopter launched up was which was another very dangerous evolution. I mean that thing took off like a spring. I was going to um, say it had to be quite, quite the uh, the takeoff. 
off of a yeah, off yeah. Holy it was shit. a one-time it was a one-time deal because from what I recall, I heard that the captain said, "You guys got one shot. If it doesn't work, we're pushing it over the side because we had too much topside weight, and the we couldn't get any of the pumps." because if they all went in the water and we couldn't retrieve them with our small boats. So um, I had no idea we were drifting so close to the island, to be perfectly honest with you. But getting, as Jack said, getting the tow line up forward with the ship rocking and rolling, it was icy and rainy. You could not walk. You were just sliding from side to side, hanging on to whatever you could. And it just amazes me that nobody fell over the over, overside or nobody was lost. And I, I really didn't realize how much danger we were in until many, many years later. You know, I was, I was 18 years old. I was young and indestructible. And I became an officer, and I was going to be the executive officer of a buoy tender in San Francisco. So I went to uh, Perspectives Commanding Officers and Executive Officer School at the Academy, and they used the Jarvis grounding as the case study for stability. And... Mm-hmm. That's when I realized how much danger we were really, really in, and that the role the ship had exceeded the design roles for for capsizing, which I'm very, very thankful the engineers were off on the high side. That's that's nobody slid off the off the ship after reading it. Uh, the the book is titled "It's It's." <laughs> It's all present and accounted for. I'm going to go back to the, to the author, Steve, right now. <laughs> wow. Um, what? Where was the Coast Guard? Could They couldn't get to it in time, or what was going on? Uh, they didn't have any assets that were nearby. Um, I think, uh, I don't think there was any other high endurance cutters nearby. Uh, maybe some buoy tenders, but uh, the closest ship, uh, ships were the Japanese trawlers. There was two of them that were somewhat close, but uh, as far as any other ships, uh, they were on their own. I think I, the book talks about the the indomitable spirit of the crew and the, and their and their devotion to saving their ship. Could you address that a little bit? Because that that's a big part of the story. The I heard from several of the crew members that they didn't have time to really um, have fear. They were too busy working to save the ship. They didn't even stop and think about it. Uh, a couple of crew members that were up on the bridge, uh, one of them was, uh, he looked over in the corner, and a crew member was uh, basically, you know, in a, uh, curled up, yeah. worried that they were going to die. And he immediately you know, got hold of the guy and 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 knock and knock some sense into him. Say, hey, you got to get busy. You know, here you need to do this. You know, and it was uh, and the captain had the same feeling that he had to keep the crew busy so they wouldn't dwell on on the, on the things. I, I know uh, Jack was. Uh, they had this uh, water pail brigade where they would take water and and up the ladder and then toss it overboard, and people got soaked doing that, but. Uh, the captain wanted to make sure that everybody was keeping busy so they w- wouldn't stop and think about how dire it was. Captain had quite a background. He was, he had been a, a, uh, he had been in the, uh, Marine Service, uh, Merchant Marine Service during World War II and he had quite a background. And, uh, the reason he came up with Coast Guard was he had spent uh, about 10 years in the Merchant Marines and 
came home one day and his daughter uh, went screaming away from him to her mom saying, you know, who's that strange man in the house? <laughs> and so he decided, you know what, uh, I think I'm done with this. And uh, he selected for the Coast Guard and he had quite a background. And he, he sort of a natural choice to be the first commanding officer for the Jarvis based on a lot of his uh, maritime experience. Wow. But he was, uh, uh, it's, yeah, uh, people I talked to said that crew members didn't really have time to, to think about uh, dying. They were too busy doing their jobs. They were we- very well trained. That was one thing. Uh, Captain and the EXO made sure that the crew members were very well trained before they left Honolulu. Uh, they did underway drills and, and they had won some awards. So that in itself may have uh, helped save the, the ship. Also, uh, I think a lot of credit goes to the chiefs. The chiefs were uh, ex- extremely experienced. He had great leadership, you know, not only Jack Hunter, but uh, Chief Stanswick was uh, in charge of both mates. Um, Rick uh, worked under Stanswick. He's quite a colorful ca- character. Uh, he's still around. He's in his 80s down in Florida, and, and I called him. Somebody told me, yeah, if you call him, you're going to need an hour. And, and I did, but, you know, he started telling me a story. He says, uh, well, Steve, I'll tell you the story, but he said, you can't put it in the book. And he'd tell me a story. I'm thinking, yeah, that's not going in the book, but, uh, uh crew members yeah. loved him. Uh, uh, if they had to work late, he made sure, you know, they worked late, but he was there right there working with them. And, uh, there's one thing, uh, he, he, he was, uh, quite a leader. And we're, we're running up against the, the clock. And it's just like you said, you know, we're, this this story is there's there's so much more to it, and I want to thank all three of you for for joining us in this, and, and, you know, telling us what in the world this this whole thing was about. This is the, you know, this is a Coast Guard cutter. I didn't know what that they had three hundred and seventy foot long ships, and that they would get stuck up in the Aleutian Islands in a in a raging storm with thirty and forty foot waves and below zero temperatures and everything else, and and that you they didn't lose anybody. That's that's the what I thought was incredible, not losing anybody, and the whole thing is flooded, and the septic system is floating, everything is floating all over the ship, and they didn't have fresh water. I, I'm encouraging our audience: you got to go out and read this story. You just have to read it. The book is called "All President Accounted For." The writer is Stephen Craig. It's on Amazon. I think you have your own website, don't you, Steve? Yeah, it's uh, um, Stephen J. Craig books.com and i understand that uh, people can get uh, an autographed copy if they order it through you yeah if they go to my email it's uh, scraig7002 at gmail.com uh i normally uh, a lot of this stuff goes through paypal so it's you know good safe secure and uh, they'll get an autographed copy and if i send media rate it's only five bucks for shipping Okay. Well, I have to tell our audience that Steve has been after me for a couple of months to get him on the program, and I'm so grateful that you were so persistent. And I want to yeah, thank... This, this is more work than uh, writing the book as far as marketing. Yeah, it, it, and it sounds like you're doing most of the marketing yourself. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, we'd be happy to, we'll, we'll, we'll be happy to spread the word if you, you know... And if we get the opportunity, you know, to bring you back onto the program, I would love to do that. I want to thank Jack Hunter and, and Richard Brokey. Am I pronouncing your name right, Richard? Am I lost him? 
Okay. Well, we got to go. So <laughs> I want to thank everybody for uh, tuning in today and listening to Veterans Radio. I mentioned before at the beginning of the program, we had Operation Song on. The last half of the program was all present and accounted for, the story of the uh, Coast Guard Cutter Jarvis. We had um, crew members and everything. It's been it's a, it's a harrowing story. You got to read this thing. It's, you never want to go want to go out on a boat again. Please not me. So we're going to be back next week. We enc- we encourage you all to come on back. Uh, Jim Falzone will be the host next week. Uh, we've uh, coming up programs. We've got our benefits program at the end of the month. So we need you to send us the questions of what you want to know about the Pack Tech. So we got to go. I'm getting a signal. So until next week, this is Dale Throne Mary for Veterans Radio, and you are dismissed. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.